The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. Grading scribes. Just a reminder that you can now sign up for the Writer Files Extra email newsletter and have new episodes delivered straight to your inbox. I'm sending added insights, the first shot at Writer Files merch, links to curated collections of shows like the publishing series and the writer's brain, and that's just the start. Sign up today at writerfiles.fm. It's that simple. You'll find the Writer Files Extra sign-up form, a link to listen to the archives, and more about my indie podcast production company, New Media Dojo. Just type writerfiles.fm into your web browser, and there's also a link in the show notes. I'd also like to ask for your continued support to help keep this show going. As the sole host and producer of the podcast, it's been largely a labor of love these last few years. Through the generosity of listeners like you, we can get back to a regular weekly slate of interviews. And a huge shout out to those of you who have already donated. When you sign up for the free email newsletter at writerfiles.fm, you'll see a donate button there to securely support the show through PayPal. Every donation, no matter the size, makes a huge difference. And if I provide content that is valuable to you in any way, please consider a one-time or small monthly donation. If you want the free newsletter to support the show or learn more about creating your own podcast, simply go to writerfiles.fm. Thank you, as always. I actually read part of a story, you know, in those workshops, you always have an opportunity to read mostly to your fellow classmates, but teachers will come and so forth. There was a scout there for a literary agent who heard me read this beginning of a story, probably didn't know that my heart was beating about a million miles per hour and, you know, like super nervous. But I always force myself to read because I think having a sense of audience is really good for thinking about what you're saying. It makes you really think about what you're reading and how it sounds and how it might sound in someone else's ear. There's something about that. So at any rate, that ended up leading me to get my first agent way before I was ready. I didn't have, they were like, do you have a manuscript? I was like, I could have a manuscript. (laughs) I kind of basically thought, well, someone's offering me, you know, extending a hand. So I'm going to just see what happens. And welcome back to The Writer Files. I am still your humble host, Kelton Reed, wishing you wisdom, words, and wherewithal per usual. Critically acclaimed debut author Jocelyn Nicole Johnson spoke to me about becoming a late-stage literary debutante, Walmart militias, and the writing life as an introvert. Jocelyn's a veteran public school art teacher 
whose short story, Control Negro, was anthologized in Best American Short Stories 2018, guest edited by New York Times bestselling author Roxanne Gay, and read live by LeVar Burton as part of PRI's Selected Shorts series. Her buzzy debut is 2021 Kirkus Prize finalist My Monticello. Five stories in a novella, all set in Virginia. It's been described as a precisely imagined novel exploring burdened inheritances and extraordinary pursuits of belonging set in the near future. It was selected by National Book Award winner Charles Yu as his most anticipated book of the year, hailed as a masterly feat by the New York Times, called Electrifying by Colson Whitehead and Absolutely Unforgettable by Roxane Gay. Netflix recently bought the title novella, My Monticello, for adaptation, and Jocelyn's writing has appeared in Guernica, The Guardian, Queely, Joyland, and others, and she's been a fellow at Tin House, Hedgebrook, and VCCA. In this file, Jocelyn and I discussed what inspired her quasi-dystopian fiction, how she was discovered at a short story reading, why getting tweeted by Roxanne Gay was a game changer, how to build a writing community as a wallflower, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. If you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published. And please drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other writers find us. We are rolling on The Writer Files once again. I am honored today to be joined by author Jocelyn Nicole Johnson. How are you feeling today? Oh, I'm doing well. How are you today? You know, I'm hanging in there. Um, this is an interesting time in history. It's kind of like a prelude to some sort of <laughs> denouement or something. I don't know. But um, we're still in a pandemic, oddly enough. We really are. And uh, it's strange to have your book come out and be about hard things, but also be excited about your book when the world is you know, as it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the uh, prescience of my Monticello, your uh, lauded collection, novella and and story collection. But yeah, let's wind back the clock a little bit and just talk about your superhero origin story as an author. It's a pretty inspiring story, I think, for writers. And you've talked about it at length. Um, some in the New York Times with NPR. But yeah, take us back a little bit because I understand that you were an art teacher, so you've seen some some kind of different um, you know, academic worlds. But yeah, talk about your dream to become a writer. And you know, I understand that you were um writing from an early, early age. Yeah. So um Strangely for me, that it feels very. It feels like there's a lot of continuity because I've basically been doing the same thing since I was seven, and <laughs> it's just that now at fifty, I have my first book come out. Mm-hmm. But um, for me, I just was a kid that loved um, making stories, whether it be visual stories or written stories. I kind of did that from the get go, and as I got a little bit older, I got more interested in how do I make these stories better? So when I was a teenager, I went to the Young Writer Workshop at UVA, which uh, I grew up in Northern Virginia, so that was a couple hours away. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was kind of my first experience of like a workshop and community that wasn't just, you know, a friend reading what what you've written. 
and having someone kind of take the work a little bit more seriously and think about. And I think that's why I went on that path of short stories Hmm. um, because I took a class in microfiction. So it kind of got me on this idea of compression and how can like one word do the work of three words or where can you leave space and leave and invite the, the reader to consider something or divine something that's not explicitly written on, on the page and so forth. Yeah. But at any rate, I went to college, I studied art, I ended up studying art and becoming a public school art teacher. And that was my uh, main career. I taught for 20 years in the public schools in Virginia and in a couple other settings as well. And uh, I love that. And I taught little kids. So a very specific kind of experience there. But meanwhile, um, on the side, I kind of kept the writing thing going. And uh, one of the main big jumping points was my husband and I, well, my now husband, we were just, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend. Then we traveled around the world for a year. We took a year off our jobs. We saved up money. We traveled for a year and we made a, a blog. This was back before blogs were cool and now they're not cool again. But in that <laughs> before times, this was in 1999. Uh. And we, and we were, you know, kind of wanted to communicate just mostly with our family and friends in the state since we were gone for so long. And so he ended up uh, taking photographs and I ended up writing these essays about, you know, the things we were doing and trying to convey how it felt to be walking along, uh, walking in India along, you know, the river or being in uh, Brazil, <laughs> you know, just all these mm. different places that we visited. And that was kind of when I came back, I really thought about writing again more seriously. And I ended up taking a, a workshop here in Charlottesville. We moved to Charlottesville and got married. And uh, and that was the first time I had a teacher say, you should ha- ha- you should be getting an MFA. You should be submitting mm. things to workshops. And that kind of set me on the path of every summer taking some sort of workshop or class and kind of being in community with people who dreamed of, you know, publishing books and, and so forth. And slowly over time, I, <laughs> I moved into that kind of moved my sights into that more of a way of just continuing to write and to think about it more seriously than for the end of having a book, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you were doing a lot of writing in addition to, um, you know, other things in your life, including uh, teaching and education. When did you realize that this was going to be, you know, something bigger, uh, maybe a a career pivot for you? I think I didn't realize that until I sold this book, honestly. (laughs) Um, I I did really start to imagine being able to sell a book. I actually went to Tin House Workshops when my son was about one and a half years old. Mm -hmm. I was accepted and I went to um, a workshop with a writer named Amy Bender who does these great surreal stories. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, kind of going from Virginia where I live all the way to uh, Portland, uh, and being around a bunch of people who are, were in MFAs as well as other writers who were not, you know, like a mix of people, a lot of really great uh, teachers there and the people speaking and reading and so forth. And um, I actually read part of a story, you know, you, the, in those workshops, you always have an opportunity to read mostly mm. to your fellow classmates, but teachers will come and so forth. There was a scout there for a literary agent who heard me read this beginning of a story probably didn't know that my heart was beating about a million miles per hour and I was, you know, like super nervous. But I always force myself to read because I think having a sense of audience is really good for thinking about what you're saying. It makes you really think about mm-hmm. 
what you're reading and how it sounds and how it might sound in someone else's ear. There's something about that. So Mm. at any rate, that ended up leading me to get my first agent way before I was ready. I didn't have a, they were like, do you have a manuscript? I was like, I could have a manuscript. (laughs) I basically, (laughs) I kind of basically thought, well, someone's offering me, you know, extending a hand. So I'm going to just see what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that kind of got me on the path of agents. And even though, um, the book that we developed together and we did submit never was sold. Um, I'm actually still friends with the person who scouted me. So I've kept that relationship through a second agent and now my third agent, my first book going out. So it's been, you know, a long, (laughs) a long process. Yeah. As it usually is. And, And you're probably no stranger to rejection. I know you've talked a little bit about that. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime that's patreon.com slash the writer files help us start something cool and special keep calm and write on but yeah how did it feel to have this uh lauded short story included in in one of the you know uh biggest venues for short stories um edited by none other than roxanne gay who's called your latest absolutely unforgettable for one yeah, how did it feel to be included in in the best short stories of 2018? That was amazing and huge. So the story um, "Control Negro" that ended up was first published in Guernica magazine. The whole everything about that story was um, just each thing that story did was so exciting. Like mm-hmm. from the very beginning, because uh, before it was in um, Best American, Roxane Gay actually just tweeted about it out of nowhere. I don't even think I was on Twitter or if I was, I'd never looked at it. And someone emailed me and said, do you know that Roxane Gay is tweeting about your story? (laughs) That's crazy. No, I really, really didn't know that. Um, And then from there, um, 
you know, just, it was just fortuitous that she ended up being the guest editor for the Mm. next year. And so I was like, well, I'm definitely submitting that story to Best American. Um, But Guernica, they had such a warm reception for that story. Um, Writers may know that when you send your story out, when you send your stories out kind of coldly into the slush, you just really don't know. You feel like no one, they've gone into the ether. You're not really sure if anyone ever looked at them. You kind of get an anonymous email. You know, I used to submit way back in the day when you at least got like a slip of paper and you used to have to put your self-addressed envelope in there and there'd be this little slip of paper and sometimes someone would write something really nice on it at (laughs) at the bottom. But at any rate, so um, when it was in Guernica and they were excited about it and really promoted it and then when it got accepted to Best American... Best American is such a great venue for short stories because there's so many people who actually um, teach from that Mm -hmm. group of stories who really just look to it for like a survey for those years. It was something I'd already read many years. You know, I'd kind of had random collections, you know, just here and there every Mm -hmm. few years I would read that. Um, It kind of is perennial. It stays around. You know, our, our used bookstore in the downtown mall always has like old Best Americans and they're fun to read and kind of gives you a temperature of that specific time and just, yeah. you know, and that particular editor. So I really enjoy, um, that was really great. Yeah. It was really wonderful. That must've been a thrill. Yeah. And the story itself somewhat prescient, but talk a little bit about that time, time while you were writing it, because it was what was happening in the real world, because, you know, right now it seems that you know with the pandemic and these kind of we talk about we talk about almost with every author the timeliness of of some of this work um as it relates to the pan not only the pandemic but kind of these concentric circles of crises and specifically i think you know kind of this what democracy now has called the kind of the epidemic within the pandemic of you know police uh, brutality and, and killings of uh, African American men specifically, but I don't know. Talk a little bit about kind of the prescience of the subject matter, and then we'll get into my Monticello and kind of yeah <laughs> the, the, the the overall prescience of the book. Yeah, so Control Negro was um, kind of the first story where I knew what the collection would be. Uh, It's the story, basically, of Cornelius Adams, Professor Cornelius Adams, who's a Black professor who is, I call him a Frankenstein-like figure. (laughs) The story takes the shape of a letter where he is basically confessing to his son that he's been running this kind of claim to sign experiment um, on his son. Meanwhile, his son doesn't even know this, you know, he, he, this is his son lives with his mother and his stepfather and believes his stepfather is his real father. At any rate, uh, the idea is this father is testing America's promise of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness for his black son by comparing him to what the professor calls ACMs, average Mm -hmm. American Caucasian males. And, and kind of editing and manipulating in these big and small ways his son's life to try to make his son so so perfect that I think he says America couldn't find fault in him unless we as a nation had placed it there. So it's this, almost this idea is can you, can't, can you escape or can you gain privilege, the privilege that these ACMs have hmm. by being perfect enough? And that story I wrote in reaction, you know, this was well before George Floyd, it was well before kind of this moment, this kind of second wave of Black Lives Matter that happened during the pandemic. Um, But 
you know, it was certainly after Trayvon Martin, and I wrote it about an experience here in Charlottesville. So uh, we had a university student, a Black honor university student who was bloodied by uniformed officers, like on this kind of crowded strip near the university, hmm. and it was caught on tape. And it was a reaction to that more, that closer experience of that rather than the larger one, but certainly echoes of the, the larger one. Yeah. So I was responding to that, but really the story takes that idea and just kind of twists and turns it around, I hope, um, to a question for me about how can one keep children <laughs> safe mm. um, in a society that is has racist issues, you know, and policing and how, and is preparing your child or trying to prepare your child for that its own kind of injury. Well, it resonates throughout, I think, your work and some of the, you know, the larger themes in my Monticello, including, you know, as you, as you have mentioned, the idea of place and of course, Virginia, and then the lenses of racial and environmental anxiety, also more, more of these concentric circles that we're all having to deal with today. So let's talk about this fantastic collection. So the bookseller called it one of the finest novels of 2021 and a future classic. Um, Colson Whitehead had some very glowing things to say about the book. How, how, do, how do you feel that, that your peers have received the work? Because it seems like just an incredible outpouring. I think I can't manage it. So I just kind of <laughs> pretend it's not uh, happening and then have moments of, excitement and joy and relief and anxiety too, because mm -hmm. I think if you uh, can be excited because someone says something really kind about your work, then you can also be devastated <laughs> if someone <laughs> were to say something really yeah. um, terrible about it. So there's this way of being really excited that people are responding to your work. I mean, I think when I set out, I had no idea that that would be the response and it's always exciting even to get one person <laughs> like you know when you get a note from some teacher that's like I taught this story and this is really mattered to the student or this person or whatever mm -hmm. um so it's been really it's been wonderful but it's it's mostly it's been wonderful but it's just a little it's a little it's a little unbelievable honestly <laughs> <laughs> sure sure um so I want to talk about your process and I think mostly the novella piece, because that does take up the bulk of the the work, right? Mm -hmm. um, the titular, uh, my Monticello novella. But yeah, let's talk about kind of um, your process and how you find, uh, I think I'm especially fascinated by kind of your background as an art teacher and an artist. Um but also, as you mentioned, kind of your study of the short story, how that translated into then finding a rhythm for a longer piece for you. Yeah. So with um, my Monticello, which is kind of this <laughs> almost like a chronicle of days told in a first person narrative uh, yeah. by Denasia Love, who's like a descendant of an imagined descendant of Sally Hemmons and Thomas Jefferson, who lives in contemporary times or near future, a slightly mm. apocalyptic near future. <laughs> yeah, that could, that could be now, basically, right? It's mm -hmm. not. It's not. Yeah. It's not unrecognizable. Well, it, it's like five. It's kind of like that post-futuristic, like five minutes into the future. You know? Exactly. Right? Exactly. But at any rate, I 
I wrote that as I generally do, uh, mostly not in one sitting, but in one kind of continuous space. I wrote a much shorter version of it was kind of my first stab at it. And as is often true with me, I generally kind of have been building up an idea in my brain for a bit and kind of energy around it, but I don't know what's going to happen. Um, so I kind of have a beginning, kind of a beginning place and a beginning premise. And then I'm kind of writing towards what could happen, what could happen, what could happen. And it's kind of a blind curve, like, okay, you know, trying to get them this character and this group of neighbors she ends up fleeing with kind of what would happen next, what would make sense. So I had kind of the premise that this group of neighbors would be rousted out um, by marauding white supremacists, really reflecting August 12th, uh, 2017 here in Charlottesville when we had the deadly Unite the Right rally. And it was really a trauma for our community. And I had this idea that they would they would end up taking refuge at Monticello, um, which is about 10 minutes away from where I live and 10 minutes away from where these characters live because I placed them in my neighborhood, basically. So I had that. I wrote this kind of draft of a, a long, short story where I had the beginning, I had a middle, and I had the end. I kind of wrote to what the end ended up being. But it really wasn't, it felt thin in the middle, and it was thin in the middle. And it was thin because I didn't know that much about Monticello. I'd been there as a tourist, but you know, I was kind of imagining what had stood out in my imagination about the place, the physical place, but I wasn't familiar with the upstairs rooms and how, where does the, you know, how, what can you actually see from, from the pavilion? Can you see the garden from there? And how would hmm. someone mm-hmm. live there? And all these questions about creating a space where these characters could be living for a, a few weeks and who these characters were too. I had these very thin sketches of the kind of people who were in this bus with her, her neighbors, her grandmother, her boyfriend, her ex-boyfriend, all these characters. But I also had to, I realized I needed to fill out that middle. So I really spent, you know, a period of time just pressing on that and saying, what would be believable? Why would they stay there? How can I take full advantage of this actual physical space and make it feel real to the reader? And so, you know, I went to Monticello a bunch of times and took all the fancy tours and read about it and read Thomas Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia and and imagined... (laughs) more deeply into who these characters might be and how I could hopefully give them uh, even in a, a really brief, what ended up still being a brief, you know, a short piece, still give them like breath and life and voice. You had mentioned just kind of the, this economy of word um, and, you know, your study of microfiction, but I, it definitely comes across in the writing. And I thought one of, one of the phrases you used that was especially resonant was like megastore militias, mm-hmm. you know, these, these white marauders with uh, super shiny <laughs> weapons that they've obviously just pulled off store shelves. Mm-hmm. A nice phrase phraseology. It's funny. Can I say one <laughs> random thing about that? For, yeah, sure. It, for a long time, it was Walmart militias, but then I was like, <laughs> I think it. I wanted it to be more generic. I got rid of some of the <laughs> markers of now. Yeah. Uh, also, I didn't want to, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not loving on Walmart, but I didn't really want to like necessarily call them out <laughs> in that particular. <laughs> it wasn't really the point of the piece. <laughs> it felt like a yeah. departure. But I yeah. thought Megastore worked really well. I had to think about how I could. I like the idea so much. I had to figure out a way to make it remain. Well, I understand. So, th- so the New York Times wrote uh, a piece titled, It's Never Too Late to Publish a Debut Book, 
and score a Netflix deal, um, which seems like, you know, and you, and you described yourself in that piece as a literary debutante. What, what is, yeah, what is that feeling? And is, is uh, My Monticello, the, the um, novella, actually what's been optioned as, as, the, uh, as the film? Yeah, so, so Netflix, um, they, they actually bought the film as opposed to option it. So they're, mm-hmm. it's just like basically semantics, but they're actually, you know, developing it. So as opposed to just the, you know, they can hold your things, <laughs> you know, they buy the option to make it and then they sure. can just like sit on it and then maybe not make it and so forth. Mm-hmm. At any rate, um, they just bought the novella. So wow. that will just be its own standalone piece. And that was really cr- really exciting and crazy and also <laughs> kind of unbelievable because you know i started the sum the summer of 2020 wondering a what will this pandemic do and what we yeah. what will happen to us to my family and to the my neighbors uh and then two thinking i wonder if this book will sell <laughs> at yeah. all you know this is my third try um at having a manuscript go out i felt like it was a stronger manuscript than the previous two and that it had something to say about the moment. But I didn't know what the moment would be. It was before the storming of the Capitol. It was before um, the election. It was really a very different time, even this short time between then and now that so many things have changed and, you know, it's just been a time. So it was very strange and surreal to be talking to movie people (laughs) on my Zoom (laughs) (laughs) and on the phone. It's very strange. Um, but wonderful that people, it was a really good and really uh, affirming thing that people were excited about the novella and that story. And it did feel like when when I heard people say it back to me, it felt like something that you could see, that you could visualize. Mm. Um, and so that was that was really nice. That's incredible. I can't really can't wait to see that. And um, I'm sure it's going to attract some pretty big name talent. Do you have any, uh, are you allowed to say anything more about it or? <laughs> I, I would give you the scoop, but I don't, I, I think it's still, um, it's still in the works, so I can't well, give under you the wraps. scoop yet. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Um, well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Before we wrap up with um, your advice to your fellow scribes and just how to keep going, um, I will mention the book uh, one more time, My Monticello, and described as a formidable book that bears witness to this country's legacies and announces the arrival of a wildly original new voice in American fiction. Uh, man, yeah, that is such high praise and, and so many amazing reviews. Um, we'll drop links to that. Of course, your home base there. Your website is jocelynjohnson.com. I'll link to that. You're on all the uh, socials there. I'll link to Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Anywhere else you want to connect with to listeners and readers? There's a a raft of events that you're doing. It looks like you're, you're <laughs> keeping very busy, but there's an events page on your website. Yes. So. Go to the events page. We always are updating it about what's going on. Amazing. If you want to pop in, I always say, look and lurk, support indie bookstores, buy some books <laughs> from them and, or yeah. ask a question. That's always nice. For sure. For sure. Yeah. That, those are my main places. One quick fun one for you before we wrap, if you could have dinner with any author from any era, to your favorite spot in the world, who would you take and where oh would you take gosh. that? No, I'm so bad at these kind of questions. <laughs> I feel like you're 
<laughs> supposed to be super schmancy. I just want to have dinner with like a, some writer friend of mine from some workshop that I loved who's so nice and I don't have to worry about <laughs> no what pressure. important thing that I'm going to ask for them. And yeah. uh, right now I would love to be in a city without a pandemic, you know, where you could just be um, enveloped with all the people and the sights and the sounds and not be uh, worried, <laughs> worried yeah. about it. That would be a nice. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just uh, your kind of pearl of wisdom for, for writers who could use a little boost um, during this interesting time in history who might not have kind of the access and, and uh, yeah, how to keep going. Yeah. Um, I, you know, a big thing I've been thinking about is building your writing community. And even if you're an introvert, I am essentially an introvert. Um, it's really nice to have people and to have people before your book, you know, before something big happens in your book life or whether or not something big happens in your book life. I really think having um, people that you meet over the years by going to workshops, pe- building your own little writing groups that you can keep up with, you know, depending on yeah. your needs, surrounding yourself with people that are going to be both supportive of you, but also, you know, tell you insightful things about what you're making that are helpful to you. Going to, if you know, if looking around your community and finding, you know, we have like a local writer house community here where you can take little workshops with people, um, with great writers from the community, uh, you know, source yourself and put kind of find ways to have community around you. Because I think that not only does that help you continue to write and improve your writing, but it just makes your writer life so much better. And then you already have these people who, who care about you and love you. So when you're, if, and when you hit it big, you have this kind of community around you to kind of really embrace you and feel involved in what you've done. So don't, don't wait or hope that a book coming out will do that. Kind of do that from the ground up and, and kind of keep, keep up with people. That's what I would say. Keep you grounded. Yeah. And it's just, it makes it funner. <laughs> it makes it more fun. Jocelyn, thank you very much for your time. We definitely appreciate you coming on the show. Hope you come back again and wrap with us in the future and best of luck with the um, remainder of your tour and your future endeavors. We'll look for that uh, Netflix adaptation. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate it, Kelton, and I hope you have a great day. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review to help other writers out there find us. You can always leave a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm. And you can chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week.